Hello, dear listener. Thank you for downloading, streaming, and listening to the Spooky Doings podcast. My name is Rick Guzman. I'm an improv comedian from New York. I want to thank all of our listeners for being very patient. We took an unplanned hiatus, and we're going to get into that in a future episode when Chelsea is able to be back on the show. So thanks, everybody, again, for your patience. We'll explain all of that, but that's all right, because today we got a guest that I found about thanks to the internet. I'm joined today by Paul Demi, who's an editor at Bloody Fix and author of The Shark is Roaring, the story of Jaws the Revenge, and co-author of It's Me, Billy, Black Christmas Revisited. How are you doing today, Paul? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Nice, nice to be here. Glad you were willing to come on. When I first heard about this book, The Shark is Roaring, I thought, well, that's fucking hilarious because while it is a franchise killer, there is a special place in my heart for Jaws, The Revenge. But let's get into it a little bit before that. Where does your love of horror begin? Um, I, think, I think mine's fairly stereotypical in terms of like, it, it does come from a young age watching these sort of films. The, the, the two films I always cite is my kind of, you know, started my fascination with Halloween and Jaws, and it's kind of been a bit dual ever since. Um, and then it's gone off into all these weird and wonderful tangents. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I think maybe not, not naive parenting. I think, you know, uh, I had, a, I had a, well, I have an older brother and um, he used to record them off the television. And we, and sometimes um, if the, if the tapes were left in this, this is me showing my age, but when the VHS tapes were left in the machines and you sometimes get to watch them. Um, I remember seeing a little clip from Halloween, I think it was, and I think it was um, the chasing at the end, but it was only, it was just like about five or six seconds. And it was just this, horrible music and and this guy in a white mask just chasing this screaming girl across the street and I was like what is this and obviously we're we're, we're pre-internet um and then it was just it was this kind of like it's, it's the forbidden fascination isn't it? I think with a lot of horror things it's like what is this um and I think around the time as well it was um I can I can always remember that we we had a we went to this um they call it working men's club in England and there was, um, and it's one that my, my dad used to, to go to. We used to go on a Sunday afternoon and basically we would just kind of be left to like play play pool and play like uh, games when, when they were just having a drink and catching up. And they had um, a Freddy Krueger pinball machine as well in the, in the, and it was basically a pub. And uh, it was just like, you didn't, I didn't can't kind of wrap my head around it because it was like, it was, it was school ground talk about a lot of things like that. And it's like, but we don't really understand what they are. I mean, we do now. But then it was a bit like, it was just like, it's morbid fascination, I think, more than anything. And this is why I love talking to guests internationally. And I'm thankful that we have the technology to do this. Because your story and mine are not too dissimilar. You, you talk about horror movie on the playground. Your dad takes you to the pub, in your case, in my case, the bar, because I'm American. And, you know, they might not be into it, but... That, I, if I saw Freddy Krueger pinball machine in the bar my dad took me to, I would have played the hell out of that while he was having his beers. Um, but, uh, and forgive my ignorance, but, you know, the little bit that I know of horror in the UK and the video nasties and things getting banned, uh, how did that affect 
your upbringing with horror? Did you get to see everything you were curious about? Or are you like me when you finally got to watch some of those video nasty movies? You're like, well, I don't know if this should have been banned, but it's certainly not always to my taste. Yeah, I think I think it's it's quite interesting because the the video nasties thing it kind of it was a little bit it predates me slightly, but I can't, we kind of we had the after effects of it for like people that in, for my age who are like late thirties. Um, but there was always kind of there was there was kind of a, 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 there was about three or four signature movies. You had The Exorcist, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, Driller Killer, and. Uh, and, and probably Cannibal Holocaust, which I, I've only actually seen recently. But um, there was a big hoo-ha. It was probably around 2000, and that's when The Exorcist, and it, I think it was basically when the head of the the BFI, the British Film Institute, they, they, he finally moved on after about 30 years in the job. And as soon as he moved on, the, the video nasties, the, the nasties list was basically eradicated almost overnight. And, and these these films finally got censorship and they, they were they were allowed to be released on cut or in some sort of version. And there was a big hoo-ha because it was the first time The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre were released. Uh, they had like mini cinema releases at the time, which I was just a bit too young for. But um, it was this, it felt like a real event in horror. And that's when I was kind of really finding my feet with it. You know, I was quite okay with the major franchises, but then it was like, it was these like, forbidden films and it was um i mean one, one of the interesting ones uh, on, a, on a side note was um and it's kind of video nasty adjacent was uh, the whole hoopla with a uh, child's play three uh because there was a, a child murder in this in this country by two young boys and they it was said to basically mimic um a scene from child's play three it doesn't really to be honest looking back on it um, yeah, we but, talked about uh, this previously on this show and it turns out uh, if, unless I'm mistaken, that it was proven in court that the kids hadn't actually watched the film, uh, and it was just kind of being used as a scapegoat. Yeah, basically, basically I think it, it was kind of like the, it's almost like the, say, the aftershocks of the video nasty is that Child's Play 3 was was basically, it, it was very easy to pin on, you know, being this, you know, this nasty little horror film, and it and it wasn't, where the video was banned for, for a number of years. And and then I remember watching it all them years later. I think it was on DVD, very. Uh, and I was kind of like, I didn't really get what all the fuss was about. Um, with, with you know, with it, it was it was fairly tame considering some of the places that that franchise has been and gone to over the years. Um, but it was it was it was really interesting because it was the first time I'd ever seen in in my lifetime um, a horror film being pinned on the mistakes of real life. It was you know it's it, it, it's fascinating in one sense, but it's also quite. It's quite terrifying in one in another way because it's like if you can pin something on Charles Fifth Three, you can almost pin something on everything if you re if you want to read enough between the lines. Um, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, in America, they do that a lot. We're always good at finding a scapegoat. By we, I mean people in my country that I do not identify with at all. <laughs> but yeah, there's something about that that ban taboo forbidden nature of the thing that. Because uh, I just watched Cannibal Holocaust for the first time in the pandemic because I had fuck all else to do. And if someone just said, no, it's gross and they're really killing animals, I would never have watched that. Mm. <laughs> but the the forbidden nature of it, like, oh, let me just find out and satisfy my curiosity. And then I did. And I'm like, I don't need to be banned. I think you just be, can be honest about it similar to my uh, reaction when I watched The Last Temptation of Christ. I'm like, I've never seen this before. 
it didn't need to be protested by the church. You could just say, it's not that great. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting, actually, because I, I, I don't know if, it is, if it's pandemic brain or not, but I keep seeing it. Um, sometimes I'll frequent, I think you call them thrift shops in America, we, um, so charity shops, and they, they sell, like, you know, um, basically DVDs and, and Blu-rays for, like, pennies. And, mm-hmm. and, the, and the passion of Christ must be in every single one I, I go into fairly re- fairly frequently. And, I'm, and I keep thinking to myself, because I'm, I'm not, like, you know, I don't really watch too many, like, epic, you know, um, but I'm morbidly curious about that one, you know. Um, I, th- I think I think uh, sometimes, you know, and especially in horror as well. I think uh, kind of going back to Exorcist because I, I uh, the Exorcist on the big screen recently, and it worked really well, uh, you know, with a with a quite a small audience, but on a big screen as well. But that kind of that juxtaposition of religion and horror is it do- as someone who isn't, you know, is, is completely, you know, um, atheist. Um, it really fascinates me, and I don't know why. <laughs> Well, I, I went to Catholic school for 12 years, and I remember the uproar of the Passion, uh, uh, I'm sorry, The Last Temptation of Christ when it came out, and so that was part of my curiosity for it, but I think if you were to watch it as a comedy and hear Harvey Keitel's voice as Judas Iscariot, because it's no different from his performance in Reservoir Dogs, really, so you could have a chuckle. Yeah, I mean, what what uh, interestingly, a uh, film that I did watch, I watched about eighteen months ago, was uh, I am, and obviously it's it's the cut version, is the Ken Russell's The Devils, and um, I thought that was phenomenal. But again, it was, an, it was very another religious adjacent kind of. I mean, I think people call it a horror film. It's it, it doesn't it doesn't it's so it's it's very hard to kind of categorize it, but it's it leaves a, a really lasting mark on you because it, it's just so wild. And you say, you know, how did they get away with this? And obviously they didn't. So yeah, there you go. All right. So let's move to your book, The Shark is Roaring. Um, what was it about Jaws the Revenge that compelled you to write a book about it? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's always been a very nat- natural curiosity for me. I have, I have a very strange fascination with the film. Um, when I was, uh, I think it was my, t- I think uh, I say I said this in the book. I think I was about it's either my ninth or tenth birthday, and and uh, I had the choice of having about three birthday gifts, and then uh, and my mum managed to get. Uh, George was out of print in the UK at the time, and through a local library service, um, she managed to get a copy of that, but also got me a copy of George the Revenge, uh, because we'd seen it on TV a couple of times, and um, I think it was a t- it was a tennis racket set or something like that. So I got like three presents, and it was. Um, and, and it was and my birthday is in July, so it's, it's always quite sunny over here and quite warm. And I was I just what kind of want to go inside and watch like Jaws and Jaws the Revenge. Um, but um, there was only two in the, in the reason that I kind of uh, gravitated towards both films. In, in, I mean, Jaws is a great film anyway, but there's only two film, two scenes in films that I could never watch as a child. And that was uh, Quint Game by the Shark and Jaws and Sean Brody's death in Jaws the Revenge. I found them really horrifying in kind of the same way. They're they're very gruesome, and I really probably shouldn't have been watching them at that at that age. You know, there was a lot of blood, and you know, obviously there's you know Sean loses an arm, and it's it's horrible. You know, there's the screaming over the uh, the Christmas carols, and it's it's actually quite well put together. I mean, you know, other parts of the film aren't, but um, what what I found is uh, when I started researching it, because I, I, I did an interview with um, Sean Brady, who plays Mitchell Anderson. It was five years ago now, um, and I, I, I published it on my website and put it in a magazine and uh, a couple of other areas. And, he, and he, he he detailed a few interesting anecdotes, and I thought I, I just wonder if this has got legs. And um, 
what happened was when uh, myself and my co-author on uh, It's Me, Billy, Black Christmas Revisited, Dave, um, we kind of split our writing duties for, for that project. So a lot of my writing for the project was done in, in one chunk. So the, um, the back end of the project it was a lot about fine tuning and putting in, seeing where pictures are going to go, referencing and things like that. So the big chunk of my writing was actually done that. And I was kind of itching to thinking, what else, what else could I write about? And, um, and I'd, we'd still got the subscriptions to things like newspapers.com and IMDb Pro just to kind of get details. And I started putting the feelers out for Jaws, the, the Revenge, just to see who else I could get stuff. If I can get the core cast, I will be really happy. And a few of the behind the scenes people. Um, obviously, by this point, Joe Sargent had passed away. Um, and a, a lot of the main production crew uh, had as well. So it made it a little trickier. But I managed to get a couple of, you know, juicy interviews and um, and, and and a couple of exclusives as well. And um and it, it took a lot of patience, uh, but uh, but again, um, it was one I chipped away at for quite a while. So I'd, I'd I'd do like the research part, I'd collate the research, I'd put it together, and then I'd kind of format it in the sense of a to try and tell a fairly chronological story. So from its inception through to production, right through to release, legacy interviews, um, and try and you know weave in some some knowledge that people might not have as well, which I, I thought was was quite interesting. And and the fact. Um, um, what, what I found is, um, and for me as somebody, you know, originally trained as a journalist many years ago, is there's a lot of stories in there, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a great film, I know it's not a great film, but, but the story of it is really fascinating, and the fact that a, a studio the size of Universal was allowed to pump about $25 million into a fourth Jaws film in the late 80s, um, to see obviously bomb so spectacularly and you know obviously kill off quite a few careers as well you know but certainly in Hollywood um it, it's it's fascinating that there's there's so many little anecdotes out there and um yeah there was there was a lot of kind of uh, groundwork to kind of cover with it but it was really it was really funny it was never it was never a chore I, I really enjoyed the whole process yeah, my day job is uh, set dressing and props for TV shows and movies so I can only imagine what a cast or what a crew rather would get up to after long days of filming in Jamaica uh, during their downtime. And I'm going to guess most of it was probably not good and probably well, debaucherous. Well, the, th the thing was, um, they, they, I, when I was speaking to Lance Guest, who plays uh, Michael, the, the son, he was telling me, that uh, what, when when they were filming in this Nassau, which is which is where it's set as well, so it's set there and it's also filmed there, so it's you know it, it's it pretty much mirrored. I mean, they built a few of the sets across the beach, but other than that, everything you see is kind of in Nassau. Um, and you said that basically they would be out on the barges all day. They would wait for the, the right kind of lighting to come, or, or the, the the sea apparently there is quite volatile because it's actually near the uh, the Bermuda Triangle which is quite quite funny that they would film a Jaws movie near the Bermuda Triangle. Um, and they would wait all day for a shot, and then sometimes they would get it, sometimes they wouldn't. So they'd, just, they'd have so much downtime that they would uh, do, um, and, and you, pro you, you probably know this from your, from your job as well, that sometimes when you're filming inside and it's in the day, they would put like blackout curtains and things mm -hmm. like that outside to make it seem like it's night. So they would try and get all the shots that are uh, in nighttime in the daytime just to make sure that they were actually being... Uh, productive and then they ran over and um, 
and they found out they, they weren't really happy. And then they gave Joe Sargent extra money to film in the Universal backlot to kind of get some extra shots and, and again, film another ending there. And it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy when you think about it. But obviously the fact that um, Sid Scheinberg, who was the head of Universal at the time, who is Lorraine Gary's husband, uh, well, late her late husband, because um, he passed away fairly recently, um, he had obviously a lot of pulling power, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's just bizarre that they would keep chucking money at this thing when, you know, anyone who's read the script knows it's just bonkers. It, it is. It absolutely is. And I, I do agree that that opening scene when young Sean Brody dies, because the third one is my least favorite, inexplicably so. But I do have a special place to love. That death is absolutely terrifying that he's kind of picked up the mantle of his late father only to get taken out in a way that his family has always feared. And it's Christmas, his grieving mother goes with her oldest son down to the Bahamas and the shark follows him. And knowing anything about sharks, especially now with so many documentaries and research, sharks don't do anything like this. It's 100% ridiculous, but for I don't know, 10, 11 year old Rick, I'm captivated. I believe this is something that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in there for the entire story. Yeah, we, 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 I, th I think when, when we are fell young, we believe this blind logic. And, and I remember um, watching him, because sometimes we'd have the VHS and I'd kind of watch it. Um, sometimes I'd watch it at my, my nan's house. And, and my dad was the first one to point out at the time and says, you know that sharks don't roar, don't you? I was like, oh, right, okay. You know, whatever, you know, eight, nine years old. Because um, it was the first time I'd, I'd kind of seen anything like that. And I was like, why is it roaring? He says, well, they can't because they haven't got vocal cords. And I was like, oh, right, okay. Um, and whereas my nan was just, uh, obviously she was obviously a bit, a bit older and she remembered like Michael Caine from like the, kind of the get caught in the Italian job mm -hmm. film. And she was like, why is Michael Caine in the, in, the, in this film? You know, it's, it's, it's so bizarre. Um, yeah, this, it's just, yeah, I mean, to, and to be fair, the, the novelization is even wilder. And, and obviously we go into that as well in, in the book, which is, uh, it was very interesting to reread after so many years and really kind of break it down in terms of being a very, very different story as well. I mean, it, it would have been an even weirder film, but, you know, yeah, I don't know if you got to speak to Michael Caine for your, your book, but I do remember reading a quote of his somewhere that he's never watched Jaws the Revenge, but the house that it paid for was quite lovely. Yeah, um, I didn't manage to get to speak to Michael Caine. Uh, ironically, I, I just thought I'm going to lean into it a little bit here. So the, um, the opening of the book is that quote, because I feel like we have to kind of address the absurdity and then just move on and, and have a bit of fun. Um, it was really interesting actually looking back through the research process because I've uh, got some like small Fangoria, Cinema Fantastique, um, some old newspaper articles. And Michael Caine was interviewed quite a lot during the production because um, he actually missed the Oscars because um, of the filming of George the Revenge. He, he got an Oscar for Hannah and her sisters. And he was still filming in the back lot of Universal when it was meant to be, when it went, I, th I can't remember who it was. Who, who, um, I think it might have been Scorny Weaver who, who received it on his behalf. Um, and it was, he said, like, obviously, it's just one of them things, but it was, it was very, 
It's very, very interesting because it's, it's, it, it, he, he talks about the film like it's this really grandiose project and it's the only one apparently, he, he, the, the reason he signed on to it is because he wanted a film that his daughter could watch because she wouldn't watch any of his other films. Um, I think this is around the time he's doing like educating Rita and things like that. And he was he was doing basically all these like paid just gigs to pay the bills. Um, I mean, there's a couple of gems in there. I mean, um, I think it's Peter Benchley's uh, the adaptation of The Islands meant to be quite good. I haven't seen it myself, uh, but he did like Dress to Kill with Brian De Palma, which is a great film. You know, it's probably slightly problematic these days, but in mm-hmm. terms of it's, it's you know the way it's shot and everything like that, it's it's so stylish. It's fantastic. Um, so uh, I, I did manage to dig, to dig up some quotes, um, but I, I did I made I made I made, all, I made the approaches to all the main cast. The the only ones who didn't really come back to me, obviously, were Michael Caine, uh, Mario Van Peebles. I managed to get in touch with some of his people, but he didn't really uh, show any sort of interest, which was a shame. Uh, and Lynn Whitfield, but Lynn Lynn had quite a small role in the film, and I don't think she probably would have had too much to share, if I'm honest, uh, other than probably you know the kind of maybe working with Mario, which you know. By all accounts, everyone was quite um, happy to be part of because he was kind of up and coming at this time. He's, he's, we're talking like um, he, he'd done, I think he'd done Exterminator 2 by this stage and a couple of other films, uh, but, he, but he's pre-New Jack City, you know, where he really kind of takes a hold and obviously becomes, um, you know, a really talented director and obviously he's, he's gone on and done amazing things, you know. I would just be very interested to know what he thinks about doing George the Revenge. I would too, because I don't know if you experienced this in the UK, but in the US, depending on the copy of the VHS or what network was broadcasting it, there's a version where his character dies and there's mm-hmm. an ending where his character survives. And I never knew which one I was going to see until I got to that point. And that always fascinated me about this film. <laughs> Yeah, well, apparently, the, so from the research and what I can gather is basically um, the ending was reshot after the film was released in America. So uh, European audiences, so audiences here and, in, and around Europe, we got the reshot ending. So I think, I mean, I might, I might be getting this back to front. Um, so you got the version where Jake dies originally. And then when the VHS was released, you got you can you've also I think some of them had the version where Jake survives because basically they Scheinberg's um, and there's some quotes about this in the book. Scheinberg basically said that test audiences really like Jake, so they basically uh, what they were going to do was they um, they were going to go and film in Malibu because um, Mario Van Peebles was living in Malibu at the time, but also so was Joe Sargent, the director, and then Joe Sargent apparently just called up Lance Gestern's like. We're gonna we're gonna reshoot shoot the end and we're gonna do this and then that's when they went into the back lot and reshot and brought Mario in for like probably a handful of days, um, and that's probably why there's a bit of you know there's there's a few continuity errors like you know Michael Caine going onto the boat and he's he's dry he's dry to the bone and you know when he's just swam from his sinking plane and things like that, um, so it's it's really funny but um, for the research of the book I was lucky to get hold of him. Um, I've managed to watch for, for my sins. I think three versions of the film. So I've got the thing what's called the theatrical cut, which is the one where I think that's the one where the shark explodes. Yes, another another great mystery of how a roaring shark with uh, an electrode in its gullet 
explodes upon being stabbed by the bow of a ship. But again, 10, 11 year old Rick makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, and then there was something called the AMC cut, which is basically, which um, is, I think that's that the shark gets stabbed in the side by the bowsprit and then it kind of sinks, which is similar to what the original ending of Jaws was in the book. So I can get why they wanted, why they wanted to do that. Um, and then the this one called the BBC cut, which basically is the same sort of film, but um, they use the wrong ratio of film. And, and again, you'll, you'll probably know this from, from your job is that I think they were meant to use, uh, I think they were meant to use 16 by nine ratio, but they use four by three. And so you can see all the mechanics underneath the shark when it's chasing Michael Brody into the, uh, the shipwreck. So you can see the big, um, like um, the hydraulic, the, the hydraulics. You can see portions. it all, and it's moving, and it's just, and it, and you can see it in at least three scenes as well, and it's just like, oh, um, so, Showbiz. Like, somebody lost their job over that, I think. Um, but so so yeah, there, there there was that, and it was kind of going through them versions and just cherry picking a few things, and then there was a few other little tweaks as well. So like on German TV, they had a couple of different angles of a few different. Um, scenes that was quite interesting um and the amc cut has like an introduction which got this like voiceover about you know sharks and fate and all this mcguffin um it's really weird um but they but the amc cut adds in uh, all the deleted scenes but it adds them in in the wrong order so there's one where they're talking about the shark when they haven't actually seen the shark yet uh, this is jake and, uh, and michael on, on like the beach but then there's a few other ones where they basically they they hint at uh, the wider backstory of Hoagie, where he was going to be a, basically um he's a CIA CIA agent masquerading as a drug pusher, um which is something that's really explored in the novelization. If anybody is curious to read about it, there's a whole side plot about it. Um, I along, am now alongside a a voodoo priest as well, just for good measure. It's the late 80s. Anytime there's something in the islands, uh, an American writer is going to throw voodoo in there somewhere, uh, bringing us back to child's play. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so we, we kind of, and we cover that, we cover the novelization. So there's like the book, the book was released about two weeks after the film and the, the, the author went on a, on a big book tour about it. And he was like, oh, it, don't worry if you didn't like the film, the, the book's really different. Um, and it's like, it is, but they're basically just adding a couple of new kill scenes there. There's some quite interesting things in it, but it's just, um, it is a little bit of a slog, I'll be honest. Um, but it's got, yeah, with the voodoo side plot, it, it kind of, it adds a lot of something that you, I, I would have never, they would have never been able to film some of these things on, on screen. It just would have been so weird. Another weird aspect of it that uh, I, I guess you could call it matter, but it's certainly perplexing, is when... Uh, Michael is in the submersible, Jake's up on the barge, and he's actually uh, kind of humming the John Williams Jaws score at him. Like, dun, 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 dun. So it's like, wait a second, you're telling me this person exists in a world where he knows there's a score that plays over his partner's deceased father chasing a shark 25 to 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean the the we the weirdest part about I find about their relationship is when they first meet again after he's come back to the Bahamas after his brother's funeral and they're like having this big Barney and he and he and he and he's slagging him off 
for not waking on Christmas Eve when he's just buried his brother. And I'm like, what's your problem? And then he hugs him. He's like, I've missed your man. And you're like, what? <laughs> it's so tonally all over the place. I don't get it. Insecure males of the 1980s. What are you going to do? <laughs> it's, I just, yeah. And, and he's got, he's just got like his two lackeys that he just basically, they're like his human punch bags, really. He just, <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, so I, bizarre. I've known some academics that, you know, when you're under the thumb of grant money, sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta work on your days off. I don't recommend it, but you know, it yeah. will happen. And again, the surrounding uh, setting of it being a Christmas film, and most Christmas films are set in the Northern Hemisphere, so it's supposed to be cold and icy in the beginning of the movie is, but then you switch it up and it's tropical and like, no, Christmas ain't, ain't that way for everybody. Some people are out there in shorts and their, their floral pattern shirt, sipping uh, cool drinks and having a good time uh, with steel drums. It, it's definitely a clash that sometimes takes a little bit of time to wrap its head around. So I think maybe that's why I prefer it to the third one, because as insane as it can be, it de it's definitely a challenging film in a good way it's poking me in a in my brain in a way that even now decades later i still appreciate um so yeah, do you still ever get to watch this movie as a fan i, I think i do now i do now because i think it, it was the same when we were writing the black christmas book we couldn't watch them as films it was so hard because we were psychoanalyzing them we were picking up on themes and all this i mean there's a bit less of that obviously with George the revenge but um, I think once, you know, the, well, the book's almost done anyway, but because um, we're hoping to release at the end of this this month, so um, all being well. well. No, tell a lie. Yeah, end of this month, like start of August. Um, yes, because I think we said the 1st of August, if I remember right. Um, I think when the first time I'll be, I'll be able to watch it again, I think I will be able to detach from Star because I've kind of got all them thoughts out of my head now um, and just... Yeah, I've kind of put them down on paper, and, and it's, it was the same like with with Black Christmas. It was it was so great to write about. I mean, even though the the you know the two remakes that didn't really work out, but um, you can kind of put them feelings to bed once you kind of once you write about them, you know, and so extensively as well. Um, and it was just and 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 tried to cover every kind of facet that that I, I could. So there's you know there's the movie, there's the book. Um, there's the Nintendo game. There's, you know, um, we, we talk about, you know, uh, you know, some hard hitting real life stuff with the stuff that happened with Judith Barzi as well, which was quite harrowing to research. But obviously I, I thought it formed a crucial part of the book because around that time, obviously she was set to be this big star. And then obviously what happened happened. Um, um, so the, there is that. Um, but again, obviously there, there are, you know, there's other themes you can look at. So obviously Lorraine Gary, as a wife of a president of a, of a of a studio, probably didn't get the opportunities that she might have done if she was a, maybe a regular Joe. Mm -hmm. um, For those of she, us that don't know what what happened, what you were talking about, could you please inform us? Yes, sorry. Um, so Judith Barzi played uh, Thea Brody. So she's the yes. uh, the young daughter of Michael and Carla and granddaughter of Ellen. And what happened was it was around a, a year after uh, they finished filming George the Revenge and um, her father was quite abusive to him, her mother and her and was very jealous of her be, becoming this big star. She'd done um, 
uh, voice work on there, All Dogs Go to Heaven and Land Before Time, and obviously was in George the Revenge as like a feature film. So she was starting to really get recognised. You know, she'd done commercials since the age of about five, I think. Um, and basically he got he got to a point one day when he, he well, he, he threatened to kill them on a few occasions, but basically uh, he, um, yeah, he it was a murder-suicide. So basically he killed them both. Uh, killed himself and then then set fire to the house I think um and yeah there was a big investigation in terms of obviously child neglect and and obviously you know the role of uh, the state because they were informed of the claims ahead of what happened and obviously what um what was planned to happen was the mother and Judith were were in the process of moving out to a hotel just to get away from him um and they just never made it. They never made it because I think they went. They went back to the house one day to get stuff, and he basically ambushed them and yeah, did this atrocious thing. Um, and then in the in the sad way that it connects back to George the Avengers, that uh, Lance Guest was one of the pallbearers at her funeral as well, which you know is, is just awful. Um, but it did garner a lot of um, national attention, and I did, I didn't know about it until years later, and then I. Because I would, you know, you know, you, especially when the internet was first, in, you know, kind of coming into its, you know, into its own, you was like, oh, I wonder what happened to that act, and then, then you read about it, and you're like, oh, fuck. I, I, you know, I kind of wish I hadn't, but um, <laughs> obviously, it's, it's part of the story and a part of, sadly, it's part of the legacy of the film. You know, um, you know, the, the film is the film, but obviously, that's something completely different. That that is fucking heavy. Thank you for eradicating my ignorance uh, about a child actress. Uh, from back in the day uh, but you were also talking about Black Christmas which is of course my favorite Christmas movie ever uh, we've talked about it on this podcast before uh, I didn't even know that it existed until I was well in my 20s uh, and then I uh, sought it out found it watched it and it's like why haven't I heard of this uh, because I've heard of Bob Clark's other films, like Porky's, like A Christmas Story. He, he's got his hands in three, I'd argue, genre-defining films, and this one is the one I've heard about the least, with some great people in it, like Olivia Hussey, Mark Kidder, John Saxon. Uh, if the the... the the urban legend tale of the calls are coming from inside the house wasn't created by this movie, then it certainly got spread out by people that were lucky enough to hear about it before I did. So when did Black Christmas come into your life? Uh, it was around, it was around kind of my, my teen years. So I was a bit removed from obviously the kind of, you know, the fascination from Jaws. And I'd seen Halloween at this point, I'd, I'd seen the whole thing. And then, um, um, they screened it on um, Channel 4 in the UK on Christmas Eve. It was, um, and uh, I turned it on, I think at the point when he first makes the first phone call, and I was like, and I was making all the pig noises, and I was like, what is this? And I, and I watched it, and I was like, I was engrossed, but I was, I was genuinely quite unnerved by it. And, um, and luckily, I think it was a couple of years after, it was when it had its first DVD release in the UK. And, um, and, because I, you know, I didn't join the dots at the time, I never knew what the film was called. Um, and I didn't kind of stick around for the credits afterwards. Um, because it was on quite late and it was Christmas Eve, and I was just want, you know, get up and get my presents. Um and, As you and, do. I, and I found it and I found 
it in a, in a kind of a bargain bin DVD store for about, um, be, be about the equivalent of about $10. And it, it had all these features on it. It had like a making of inside the house. And, um, and the ironic thing about it is um, the guy who filmed uh, the making of inside the house, um, I'm not sure if it's on the, the Screen Factory Blu-ray and a few of the other ones, um, is a guy called Dan Duffin. And, and, and Dan used to run a site called itsmebilly.com. And it was a Black Christmas fan site. You can still find it on uh, on Google. I think it's a, it's an Angel Fire site, but um, it was the first original resource for Black Christmas stuff. And Dan now uh, he's I think he's originally from I, I want to say um, Doncaster, I think, uh, in the UK. But he now lives in a uh, in Toronto, so he moved over there with his, with his partner, and they now live there, like not far away from where Black Christmas was filmed. Um, That's dedication. And and but but he filmed it, and then we managed to track him down, and and he was like this whirlpool of knowledge, like for contacts, for information, um, and and he he knew like he still knows the people who like own the rights to the film to this day because it's in a little bit of a a bit of a mire. I think the the, the rights are a bit up in the air since Blumhouse had them, uh, because I think the the rights owners. If, I, if I'm if I'm saying this correct, uh, one of them passed away recently, so the legalities of it are a bit up in the air. So if anyone wanted to do anything with it, nobody knows who to go to at the moment. So if anybody did want to revive it in like this post like kind of scream Halloween requel world, um, they'd probably find it quite hard. Um, but yeah, we got we got Dan involved, and Dan provided us because Dan um, Dan went to the set of the remake of the 2006 remake in Canada. He flew it, he was flown, he flew himself over and um Dimension Films at the time gave him access to the set and let him take pictures and he and he's let us use some of the pictures in the book and he got to meet and Bob Clark came to the set and he met Bob Clark and he met um uh oh god Andrew Martin Andrew Martin's in the remake so he, he got he got to hang out with Andrew Martin and Michelle Trachtenberg and um you know all the all the like a lot of the cast as well so it was really surreal but he basically gave us a chapter detailing that entire set visit and what went on, you know, and um, it's fa fascinating stuff, even though it's not, you know, it's not a great film. The, the behind the scenes chaos of it with, you know, with Glenn Morgan and, and the Weinsteins is, you know, it's, it's, it's engrossing. I can imagine as, as, <clears throat> as much as uh, I get chills up the spine thinking about any Weinstein these days. Um, but yeah, the, that that original one from weird disturbing sounds to the visuals the crystals to the uh head uh surrounded by plastic up in the attic to even the comedy that'll lull you and even uh the issue of bodily autonomy which is a big thing in america right now as it should be um mm -hmm. it, i i do love that that feminist hint way before its time uh, back in the 70s and it's what I enjoyed about the 2019 version even though uh, some of the paranormal stuff I question I'm very grateful to April Wolf and Sophia Takao for making that movie because there's enough movies made for me those ladies had to make a movie for people like themselves that I think is important for them to put it out there and to challenge audiences and so that everybody can have their story be told. 
Well, one of the interesting things about because we we managed to get a Skype call with uh, Nick Mancuso Jr., who was mm. one of the voices of Billy, and he did the voice for us on Skype in about the first two minutes, and it, and it genuinely it was like a little chill down your spine. I, I kid you not. I mean, I I think I've still got the recording on this computer somewhere from because we just I just kept it for reference, and I said it's uncanny how he still sounds like that, um, and it was just. Um, yeah, it was it was bizarre because he did, we didn't ask him to do it. He just did it, and I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go there." Um, it was very interesting, actually. Flipping over to the 2019 uh, film is um, April. Um, well, I got an interview with April, and April was so forthcoming with information. She was very honest about you know things that she thought works, things she thought didn't work, and also the kind of real life experiences that she was drawing from. And I think, I personally think, uh, because I was one of them people, uh, and I, I will hold my hands up, as, as I watched it in the cinema and I didn't enjoy it, but watching it back, I, I can kind of appreciate where they were going with it. I mean, but again, they were they were fighting a lot of battles on that set. Um, you know, some some with the cast, um, you know, and some with the, you know, for, I know Blumhouse has got a really good reputation, but I, feel, I felt like they were a little bit fed to the wolves a little bit given the time frames that they were given to work with. Um, I think they had three weeks to turn the script around and it was something very different uh, to start off with. I think they were they were basing it around, um, I think she, she mentions in the interview, um, oh, what, what's, the, what's the term? I can't think of what, what the term is off the top of my head. Um, it was basically the, the, the definition of basically, it's, it's a man who basically hates women mm-hmm. and that's kind of Tom where- um, it wasn't misogyny. It was um, I, f- I forget what the term was, uh, but but anyway, basically, and, and a lot of that comes through in the script. There's just a few areas where it's obviously it can't. And again, obviously, they had to, in a sense, lean into the supernatural things just to kind of maybe pin a few things together. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, it, I, I, I mean, I'm glad. I'm really glad it's found an audience because I think they, you know. If we were to have a shot by shot remake, then what what is um what's the point in the sense? Because you know, two thousand and six was it's it's bonkers, you know, and it does lean into a lot of the nineteen seventy four. But you can't really remake a bit a bit like you can't really remake Halloween. You can't really remake a lot of the classics. You know, it, they're they're very much lightning in a bottle moments. But you know, obviously, filmmakers keep trying, and then and they'll keep trying probably till the end of film. Um, and you know, the the people who who pull it off to a point, then, you know, then hats off to them, I suppose. I, I do think that, uh, at least from my perspective, that Black Christmas, the original version, found its audience later on, sometimes decades later. I feel the 2019 version has a very good chance of doing the same. I think it'll be appreciated after the fact. Because uh, there's always a lot of vitriol. And unfortunately, it's from men of my generation who get online and trash a thing before even seeing it and effectively taint the well. But I think me personally, I like going into things that I know I'm going to see as cold as possible. Like I don't Mm -hmm. need to see a preview for a Jordan Peele movie or a Quentin Tarantino movie. I know I'm going. Just give me a release date and a title and I'll be there. Um, But I think there's, there's some 
of, of my generation that it's like, you're not doing the fictional thing that I love the way I want you to do it. And it's like, well, okay, then do your own. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I find that with that experience, uh, just when you say about going in cold, uh, I recently saw, I think it was last weekend, I saw the black phone Ooh. and I went in cold. I, I tried, didn't, I didn't try to watch any shows. I'd seen like a couple of the, the images, you know, so I kind of got the gist of what it was about. Where I, you know, I didn't read the short story, and I went. I just went in cold, and I, I, I think um, I enjoyed it more because I went in cold. Whereas there's films um, where we, as an audience, especially as a horror audience, have been oversaturated, and we kind of we can almost like pick the beats, can't we? Um, I, um, a prime example, you know, a, a film that I, you know, I quite enjoy is Halloween Kills, but but I, I recognise it's got a lot of issues. And, but at the same time, we were so overexposed because of the pandemic and everything else. Uh, we could almost pick the beats, um, which sucked a little bit of the fun out of it. Whereas, obviously, we're in July now and we haven't seen a Halloween Ends trailer yet. And it's great. It's great. It is. It is. I agree so completely that, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to see Black Phone tomorrow. Uh, I did read 20th Century Ghost years ago and have very little recollection of it. So that certainly helps with me going into the movie to not remember the story at all. Uh, mm. No offense to Joe Hill, who's a writer that I love. I, it's been a while. And uh, you know, the last two and a half years were kind of rough. Some things got jettisoned out of my brain in order to survive. Yeah. Hopefully Joe Hill pardons me. I met him a couple of times since the signings. He's a nice dude. I'm sure he'd understand. Um, but yeah, it is, it is great to, especially with internet culture, I don't understand the people that want to see a preview seven months before something comes out so they can dissect it and try to figure out this is where the movie is going to go. And then what happens when you're wrong? Are you going to be upset? You're going to be upset at the movie instead of you who couldn't figure out the puzzle. It's okay. It's not the Da Vinci Code. We'll be all right. Just enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I do. I do think there there is a sentiment there about. I just think. Because you know, uh, you know, we're, we're we're all part of this this community, this 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 horror fandom, and and I, and I, and it, I don't know if it's just because I'm a little bit older now, and I just feel like maybe we just need to relax sometimes, you know, like because of all the there was a lot of hoo ha around, you know, Neff Campbell not coming back to scream, and you know, at the end of the day, if, if the company weren't going to pay her, then that is a that is a completely separate issue altogether. But if if she's decided to step away, then that's her decision, you know. I can't imagine if the internet was around in 84, the, um, oh, sorry, in, in 85, and people would have found out that Heather Langenkamp wasn't coming back to Nightmare on Elm Street 2. The, the vitriol that would have been online about it, or if, or if Robert Englund was going to be replaced as Freddy Krueger. I mean, you just can't imagine what, you know, what fandom would have been like. It's like, you know, we've, we've had all these years where we've been, you know, probably spoiled a little bit, and we're, we're, and we're probably... A, we're quite spoilt right now, you know, barring a couple of outstanding franchises. There's a lot of good stuff out there, you know. Um, you just got to, you know, sometimes just take a chance on things. I, I couldn't agree more. I always tell my friends and people I'm around, like, I don't need to see previews for movies that I know exist. I need a preview for something that I don't know exists at all. And that's the kind of thing, like, I didn't know this was a thing. This little thing might be the catalyst for me watching it. And even if that's not the case, if I come across something on streaming without a preview, I'll just read a little synopsis and go, all right, I'll give it a chance. 
sometimes that pays off. Other times, I'm not going to get that 90 minutes back. But that's all right. That's the gamble you take with art. And, you know, there, there's worse ways to spend your time, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, and, and the thing is, like, um, I think, because I remember when I, w- I went to the cinema, it was a few years ago now, and I, and I saw Midsummer. And, yes. and I'd seen Hereditary, and I, and I really liked Hereditary. I mean, it went a little bit off the rails at the end, but all, all in all, like a really solid film for me. But again, quite polarizing. And I, and I went to see Midsummer, and I just, it was Sunday afternoon, and it was just like, I just wanted something to do for, and I knew it was like a two and a half hour film, whatever. And I, I did, I found it, I liked moments of it, but it was a real slog. But, but I come out, and I was like, I, I, I've seen a lot worse. I've seen a lot worse. So I'm like, I'm not going to, Say it's the worst film I've ever seen in my life. And it's like, because it is it's stylish as shot. It just the the it was just wasn't for me, you know. It just, you know, horses for courses um is a phrase that we use over here. So it's you know, you like things, you don't like things. I, you know, if you don't like it and I like it, oh well, you know, we, we we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> Sometimes you just gotta change your perspective. I look at Midsummer as a romantic comedy without as many prank calls. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. Yeah, my soul's a little bit different. I, my view is a little bit askew. And uh, sometimes I just say these things to amuse myself. But, uh, you know, I've also known people that have been uh, in kind of trash relationships that they might benefit from going to some place in Northeastern Europe and uh, putting the trash people that they date into a bear suit and lighting the barn on fire. But that's a story for another time. Yeah, the, the, weird, the weird thing I found about Midsummer is that they had this really hypnotic quality that I had no idea where the film was going to. I didn't know when it was going to end and I didn't know what was going to happen. So I, I kept, obviously I kept watching. I, I would never, I, I don't really subscribe to the kind of, you know, walking out of a cinema if I, if I don't like. It's like, I'll, I'll stay because, you know, the, 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 it might have some sort of a redeeming quality. And to be honest, it's very rare that I'll go to the cinema and see a film and I'll be like, well, that was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. There's, I always try and, I think there's always something to take away from it. I, you know, gen, gen, generally, I think uh, films that make it so far, um, are to, certainly to cinema, you know, outside of maybe like your, your bigger releases, like, you know, I know that like there's the discourse with Morbius and things like that. Um, but I have no interest in seeing Morbius anyway, so I'm not really going to waste my time with it. And definitely during the pandemic, I look at uh, every theater going experience because uh, uh, I don't know what the perception is uh, like outside of the U.S. Uh, I know inside it there are some people like it's over and I look at the data and go it's not um, but I'm also tested regularly for work so I get it. Uh, it's a risk benefit analysis like will I take the risk for Black Phone? Yeah. For Morbius I can wait to watch that at home because also I'm going to make fun of it while I watch it and sometimes with the right person or persons if you got that special someone to dig your rib into or your elbow into their ribs and go hey check out this fucking bananas thing over here uh it could take a movie that may not be great but if you're laughing through it the entire time you make it enjoyable similar to like you know uh i went to a drive-in for the first time during the pandemic and for a movie like say grizzly which watching at home isn't as good, but if you're with the right crowd in the right communal environment, you know, movie theaters aren't dead. 
just because of a global pandemic. There's enough of us that can make a truly great moment uh, in a theater, be it indoors or outdoors, that makes it still fun. I love Grizzly. And this is is the flip side of it, though. I got the chance to review for the website. It was Grizzly 2 Revenge. Yes. Um, And... That was that was one where I was like I, I kind of leaned into it as a more of a comedy and John Reese Davis's performance, which is just nuts, um, kind of got me by on it. You know, but I was like, "Ooh, that was a rough ride." Just like you know, um, but yeah, I love Grizzly. I, I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a sucker for them kind of animal attack films of like the 70s, 80s. Um, it's um, it's had a quite a nice Blu-ray release over here along with. Um, have you seen one called Prophecy? Um, I think I've heard of it, but I've not watched it. I think I think the director's John. I want to say it's John Frankenheimer, but I might be wrong. Um, but it's it's one. It's kind of like a mutant bear, um, and it's kind of like you know in the woods killing people and everything else. But it's it's really really interesting in because it was based off a novel by the same guy who wrote The Omen, a, a, an author called David Seltzer. And the novel, the novel's wild. If you can pick it up, it's probably, it's probably quite cheap, actually. Um, and yeah, he wrote he wrote prophecy like about two years after writing the Omen. And I was like, where's your mind at? <laughs> um, that, that's kind of how I felt when at the end of Grizzly Two, and the bear's getting electrocuted, and it's footage from the shark getting electrocuted in Jaws Two, which brings us full circle back to the shark and i think that's a great place to land this plan so paul where can people find you online if they want to find you uh so for well the, for the for the jaws book on facebook it's jaws revenge book so if you just search that uh, you'll be able to find the book and i just kind of, kind of post them there fairly regularly um i'm at bloody flicks one word on twitter and instapol 78 on instagram and I kind of just, I, I kind of, my, my stories are usually horror related. So you'll, you'll, you'll find uh, all that kind of, um, all that kind of goodness on there, really. Cool. And you can check out Spooky Doings on Instagram, Spooky Doings Improv on Facebook. Uh, I'm Rick Guzman, 718 on Twitter. And in the meantime, and in between time, everybody stay good, stay healthy, stay spooky. Paul, thank you very much for being a part of the show. Thank you. Cool.